There's a lot that's been said about original sin. Probably too much. And I was going to share with you a reading from Genesis chapter 3, which is sort of the story in the garden, and we'll get to that in the sermon. But I wanted to throw in a different perspective, a different angle, a different way of conceiving, kind of a mind-blowingly different way of conceiving about sin and original sin and kind of blow those up. Uh, And poetry is the best way I know how to do that. This is not my poem. This is a poem called The Creation of Sin by poet Patty Ann Rogers. Gordon wants to commit a sin never committed before. He says he is bored by the lascivious. He has slept through a thousand adulteries. He calls theft and murder and greed embarrassingly unimaginative. He spends an hour each clear afternoon on the lawn beneath the alders, grooming the dogs, trying to imagine a sin so novel it has not yet been forbidden. Sometimes, in that moment, just before he discerns the fish treading in light at the bottom of the spring, or when he studies the eye of the short-eared owl, In the instant before it sees the shrew, he is certain he has already committed that peculiar sin without knowing it. In the early morning, as he watches himself from the icy black cedars by the window, dreaming in his sleep, he can almost define it. As the soul The only author of sin, Gordon knows he would be obligated to create its expiation by himself. Grace by seaside scrutiny, he might claim. Forgiveness by clam classification. Confession by continual shell collection. He could invent sacred vows, sworn custodian of conifers. Promised caretaker of ambush bugs and toad bugs. He could preach atonement by paper and mathematics, redemption by ritual, guessing at the matter of stars. Today he has recorded a unique grassland prayer on a tape with the whooping cranes. He has gathered sacraments of metamorphic meal moths and hardening sassafras fruit. And he knows if he could just commit a truly original sin, it would mean the beginning of his only real salvation. Well, the question I want to begin with this morning is this one. What do a National Geographic, this one particularly, and a pair and an apple have to do with one another. Or better said, what do they have in common with one another? Let's start with the National Geographic, which takes us back to a time when I was 11 years old. It takes us back to Mr. Ducker's woods. Mr. Ducker was the guy who lived across from my parents' house. He had two acres of really uh, wooded forest, elms and cottonwood trees. 
and he had given us permission to play in those woods, to build tree forts and a lot more, but there was one exception. He was very clear. He said, do not mess with the stuff around my house. He lived in this house in the middle of a bunch of woods, and he was a Boy Scout troop leader, and I think probably at heart a pack rat who always thought, man, this is going to come in handy someday, and I'm going to know what to do with it when the time comes. <laughs> so there was a camper trailer and piles of poles for a teepee and pallets that were everywhere and old machinery and plastic barrels and a ton of other stuff kind of around the perimeter of his house. And he said, don't mess with that. The rest of the woods have at it. During that summer, 24 years ago, I invited, I would often invite my friends to join me in the woods, to play together, to build forts in there. And I came to see it quite quickly as sort of my forest. I'd given permission to play there, and so I would, I, I would sometimes forget to tell my friends, hey, here's the key rule. I just sort of knew it, and you know, I thought I knew it. That's the key rule. Don't go around the forbidden zone of Mr. Ducker's house. But I forgot to tell my friend Matt. So one day, we were out on a gathering expedition, you know, finding treasures for your tree forts, uh, sticks to carve to turn into spears, rocks to potentially throw at invaders. These would be probably siblings coming into your territory. <laughs> People who got too close to our, to our tree fort. And Matt had raced ahead of me in this treasure hunting expedition, and I caught up with him pretty close to Mr. Ducker's house. And we both noticed this camper trailer right by his house. And Matt said, I wonder what's in there. What do you think is in there, he said again. And he was excited, and I was excited, and we were both in the spirit of adventuring and gathering, and so we just forgot the rule. And I said, let's find out. The door to the camper trailer was locked, so we climbed up on top of it. I'm not kidding. And there was a hatch there that was open, that we could open. So we opened the hatch and dropped into this camper trailer. Inside, we saw piles of magazines. This was a National Geographic on the top of one of those piles. It was this, it's this, this is a 1985 issue from National Geographic. 17 years later, the photographer went back. This was an Afghanistan woman in a refugee camp, went back and found her again. It caught my eye then as it still catches my eye. So I was busy sort of hoarding and gathering National Geographic magazines, thinking, what great treasure for our fort. Matt had found a dozen arrows for like bow and arrow, sharp arrows. Better than spears, we thought, carved spears. We looked at each other. This was perfect treasure for our fort. We emerged from the camper hatch, the top again, hands full of goodies. And then we heard a loud voice. What are you boys doing? That was Mr. Ducker, of course. Now, I know, I realize that this story seems like maybe a counterintuitive place to start for a sermon called Original Sin Setting the Record Straight, because I seem to be sort of repeating. But, but stick with me. Stick with me here, and let's visit. We need some context. So let's visit the granddaddy of all original sin, really, St. Augustine. We need to create a context for this story. So in his book, Confessions, written just around 400 AD, Augustine recounts the time he and a bunch of friends stole some pears from a farmer's field. 
tenths the pair. He reflects that they didn't do it out of hunger or need. They were simply goofing around and wanted to, and they could, and so they did. And they didn't even eat all of them. They sort of laughed to themselves and then threw some to some pigs who ate the rest of the pears. As Augustine reflected further on the theft of the pears, and I have to tell you, Augustine was plagued with a whole bunch of uh, what he would call sexual urges, and he was ashamed of those sexual urges. So he's thinking about this theft, his own sort of inner turmoil. He saw in himself a mirror image of Adam and came to believe, as author Elaine Pagels writes in her book, Adam, Eve, and the Serpent, that Adam's single arbitrary act of will in the garden, okay, so Adam's act in the garden, eating this fruit he was forbidden to eat, rendered all subsequent acts of human will inoperative. Do you hear this? So Augustine is wrestling inner turmoil, sees Adam in the garden, says that that act of will, that willfulness, subsequently removes the, the capacity for human beings to do anything other than be in sin. All subsequent acts of human will inoperative. All suffering from crop failure to cancer is, I think Augustine would say, evidence of the moral and spiritual deterioration that Adam and Eve introduced into the world by their disobedience. I'm not saying I believe this. I'm just giving you some background. (laughs) I'm just giving you some background here so we can journey into this together. In short, according to Augustine, humans are bound to sin and cannot do otherwise. Adam's original sin binds us to sin. We cannot do otherwise. So back to Mr. Ducker's wood, and I'm emerging out of the hatch of the camper with a stack full of magazines, and Augustine, given his worldview, would hardly be surprised to see me emerging, holding those magazines, shaking with fear in front of Mr. Ducker. He would not be surprised, because that theft, much like Adam's theft, that I was banned from Mr. Ducker's forest, and he would not be surprised that with the help of another God figure, Mr. Ducker, sort of the dominant God figure in the story, but my father, I was grounded and cursed to wander the empty barrenness of my own backyard. (laughs) Augustine would be surprised at none of that. He would say, well, of course, It all goes back to Adam, and you are, sin is the consequence of sin, therefore you're in this loop until you can finally escape it. This was his inner turmoil. He would say that my behavior was simply the natural consequences of that original sin. Augustine believed that this condition of original sin, if this hasn't been made clear yet, had been passed down to me in my conception from my parents, and then all the way back through them to the ancestral parents. Procreation, in his view, is the way in which this original sin transmits itself. Well, at least we know how to stop it now. (laughs) Seems like a good insight to have. (laughs) But in all seriousness, I will admit that I was reluctant to really take on original sin as a topic. I thought I'd be arguing against all of human history. It's original sin, right? I mean, way back when. But as I looked into it, I realized the ideas of original sin are really only 1,600 years old, and they're not preached by Jesus. So I thought, well, what the heck? What the hell? (laughs) What can I lose? 
What can I lose? So here's a short history lesson before we get to the apple. This is all going to come together, I think, before we get to the apple. What you need to know is that like so much of the development in early Christianity, it's the 350 years after Jesus' death that often hold the keys to understanding where did the dogma and the doctrine and some of these things that we just think have been there forever, where did those come from? It emerged in those 350 years. It didn't just drop from the sky, written in stone, set that way. Perspectives were argued. Councils were convened. There was debate. There was vote. At the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, a council of religious leaders came together and voted that Jesus was indeed fully divine. 300 years after his death, human beings came together and said, well, there's been a lot of debate and a lot of argument. We just want to vote so there's some clarity. We can have some uniformity in the religious world. I mean, that's not that much of an exaggeration. They said Jesus is fully divine. So perhaps you're not surprised to learn that Christianity didn't start with original sin. And it's worth pointing out that original sin as a concept is completely foreign to Jews. In her book, again, and I recommend this book, Adam, Eve, and the Serpent, author Elaine Pagels explains that in the first centuries after Jesus' death, the dominant theme of these early Christian communities was a message of freedom and especially moral freedom expressed in Adam's original freedom to choose. They didn't see that as a story about depravity and original sin. They saw it as a story about freedom and moral freedom and the choice every human being had to choose good or evil. For many Christian converts in those first three centuries, this idea of moral freedom to choose good or evil was effectively synonymous with the gospel of Jesus. Many early Christians found freedom in following Jesus' teachings. They endured torture and death as they renounced social expectations and obligations and family and wealth and public reputation. In fact, as long as Christianity was persecuted by the Roman Empire, which it was for those first 300 years after his death, Jesus' death, that Christian preachers proclaimed the plain and powerful message of freedom and people were living that message. I know I'm throwing a lot at you this morning, and those of you who are note-takers are like, probably have arrows, and you're like, wow, this is a lot of stuff. We have, okay, so hang with me. The quick recap on this piece is that original sin is nowhere in the landscape of early Christianity, and for the first three centuries after Jesus' death, Christians are persecuted by the Roman Empire. But in 312 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine has a conversion experience. He becomes a Christian. So think about this for a minute. For 300 years, your identity has been in response to persecution, to someone pushing against you and your faith community. And now the emperor of this ginormous empire has had a conversion experience. What had once been a persecuted religion soon becomes the religion of that whole empire, and many Christians begin to question the alliance and the newfound wealth and power of these church leaders. Suddenly, Christians who had defined themselves against the Roman Empire were now part of the empire. And I think this is an interesting question for us to wrestle with at times as citizens of the United States and our role as a country in the global community. But it is in this context 1,600 years ago that August, Augustine wrote 
And it's in that context that we must understand him. He was trying to make sense of these newly formed political alliances and these religious alliances that had formed around him. He was trying to make sense of his own life and his inner turmoil. So he reflected on his life. He read the writings of St. Paul, and he came to believe that all of humanity and all of creation is truly enslaved to sin and is sick, is suffering, is helpless, is irreparably damaged by the fall. I don't think we like hearing that or thinking about that very much. I mean, put your hand up if you're like, hey, I'm irreparably sick, suffering, and damaged from the fall. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't jump on that bandwagon real quick. But here's the thing. Now, I'm not saying I believe this. I'm just inviting you to reflect on this. If you look around our world today, and you look at the oil spill in the Gulf, and you look at two wars being fought halfway around the world, and the many wars being fought and have been fought, and you see unimaginable poverty and see the suffering in the world, if you can locate yourself there, you might begin to understand where Augustine found himself as he was looking around his landscape, his world, trying to make sense of why is it like this. Not a very fun worldview. And in his book, Confessions, he talks about this inner turmoil. He describes how he cries out, How long? How long? Why is there not an end to my uncleanness, my suffering? In this moment of pure anguish, Augustine hears this voice. He's in a garden. He hears this voice of a little child that says, You know, pick up your Bible and read. And he does. And in that moment, I don't know what passage his eyes come across, but Augustine locates himself in the story and sees Jesus Christ as the way out of this turmoil. He feels a sense of peace, and he no longer thinks that he needs to have a wife or get married, and really gives up hope for the world at that point in time. This is not Unitarian Universalist theology. <laughs> but you need to understand this story. Through the idea of original sin and the idea of Jesus Christ as the gift to sort of blighted souls everywhere, Augustine found peace and he could understand why the world was the way it was. And these ideas that he articulated and he refined, they quickly took hold. As Elaine Pagel says in her book, by insisting that humanity ravaged by Adam's sin, is helplessly in need of outside intervention. This is the key part of this to hear. Helplessly in need of outside intervention. Augustine's theory not only validated secular powers as an indispensable defense against the forces that sin had unleashed in the world and unleashed in human nature, but his theory also justified the imposition of church authority by force if necessary necessary for human salvation. So what, what Augustine did is he offered a theological reason for the alliance of the church and the empire, that it was necessary for human salvation. What had once been a gospel of freedom, of human freedom, was replaced by a story of universal corruption and human bondage, and this idea was supported by the imperial Roman Catholic Church. And it quickly moved to the center of Western history. Still with me? More or less? So that's the history of original sin in a nutshell. 
Now it's time for this apple, and it's time to set the record straight. So we'll jump to chapter 3 of the book of, of Genesis and see if we can't discover something new there. I know last time I asked, did anybody bring their Bibles? And someone held up their smartphone. They're like, oh, it's right here. I'm following with you, Pastor. <laughs> so I encourage you, I encourage you, Google this when you get home. Don't do it right now while you're in the pew. I mean, let me finish the sermon. But when you get home, or if you want, you can look at chapter 3 Genesis right now. That's fine. But, but let's look at this with fresh eyes and see what's there and what new insights might come. Because I think we take the whole Bible sometimes, or the a chapter in Genesis, and we're like, that's Adam and Eve, story of original sin, barf. And sort of, <laughs> like, we don't, we, don't, we don't engage with the story. It's there. So, I'll summarize this. The first thing we meet in the garden, in this third chapter of Genesis, is the serpent. A creature that, in that context, often represented wisdom and immortality. And in Genesis, not described as evil or as Satan. Those are later interpretations that are put on the story. The serpent, in this story, tells the woman that the fruit won't kill her. And by the way, it never says it's an apple. It's always depicted in art as an apple, but it's not clear what kind of fruit it is. The serpent tells the woman that the fruit won't kill her, despite what God said. Well, maybe God's lying here. I don't know what's going on. And will, in fact, the fruit will, in fact, give her knowledge. And the woman, if you look closely at this chapter in Genesis, displays neither foolishness nor weakness. And she's definitely not tricked by the serpent. She looks at the fruit. She sees that it is good for food and that it is desirable for knowledge. So, like any decent-minded Unitarian Universalist, <laughs> Eve, and I would make an argument, a strong argument, that Eve is a Unitarian Universalist, because at that point in the story, one God, no hell. <laughs> right? <laughs> Look at the book. Eve decides to test the rules. She eats the fruit, and she shares it with her husband, and neither of them die. This is where the story takes a turn we can all relate to. Promptly after gaining the ability of moral discernment and under pressure from God, who's walking around in the garden saying, hey, what did you guys just do? <laughs> the man starts the rich tradition of passing the buck. <laughs> he says, God, this woman here gave me fruit from this tree and I ate. And the woman blames the serpent. And God says, here's the deal, and I'm paraphrasing, here's the deal. <laughs> Men must work the earth by the sweat of their brow, and women will have pain in childbirth, and the snake will crawl on its belly and will be struck by humans, will be hit on the head by humans. And I think it's interesting to note that that describes the very life and the reality that these authors of Genesis would have known, hard work in the soil, pain in childbirth, a fear of the snakes and the grass in their communities. There's no mention of sin in this story, much less original sin. In fact, if you go back to the very beginning of Genesis, you find a creation story filled with God's blessings and joy at the goodness of all creation, including human beings. Despite eating the fruit, those original blessings are not revoked. 
again and again in the creation story. The line is, the refrain is, and it was good. And it was good. And on the final day, when human beings are created, and it was very good. And so, when I look at creation, I see hints. I see the possibility of an original blessing stamped all over everything. And when I draw on the experience of my own life, much like Augustine did, this original blessing is confirmed. Yes, I have, we have the capacity for evil, oftentimes great evil. We have the capacity for sin. We have the capacity to harm others. And yes, life is hard. But we are not fundamentally flawed at our core. And there are blessings waiting for us in the world. So let's return to Mr. Ducker's woods one more time. And when I look back on that theft and the disobedience, I see it for what it was. I was just a kill. My, my friend and I were just silly kids goofing off, not fully aware of accountability or responsibility in the world. It had nothing to do with original sin. And nearly a year after I was caught stealing those National Geographics from the camper trailer, I heard a knock on our front door, and it was Mr. Ducker come back across the road. Stunned, I could think of nothing to say to him. So he said this to me. It's springtime. I need some help cleaning up the woods. After that, the woods are waiting to be explored. And I think you know the rules. <laughs> so about the pear and the apple and this magazine. They are all symbols, symbols and images that have been used to imagine and shape an understanding of humanity and human nature. For me, this magazine represents the possibility of forgiveness and blessing in this life. Because one year after I had been banned from the woods, I was invited back into that paradise. Despite our imperfections and the times we fall short of our best selves, and we so often do, blessings, a hand that reaches out to ours, a kind word, deep listening, blessings are what we can give and receive when we love life and we love our neighbor with all our heart and mind and soul. Blessings just might be in the nature of things. And this morning, I invite you to see your life as an original blessing. A blessing grounded in a creation that is alive with mystery and wonder and possibility and shellfish and birds and moths and little minnows. Blessings that call you to create justice and peace so that the blessing might grow. We have our work cut out for us. This is not easy work, but I trust that with love and sweat and effort, it is an original blessing we will pass on to our children and to future generations and indeed the world itself. That is setting the record straight. Now who are you going to believe?
St. Augustine or me. <laughs> Amen.